Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Hi-Ho Podcast. I'm David Westbrook. And I'm Victoria Sundin. And this is Have You Heard Of? Do I sing an extra verse? I don't know. Yet again, I don't know how the song goes. Because <laughs> I've always heard it as... You know? I think it's just... Sound off in the comments below if it's one or two times. If you've ever heard of the the Vivaldi Four Seasons... Please let us know how it goes, because we don't know. <laughs> we both have we, degrees in music. With mu- degrees in music, don't know how it goes. Okay, we both got degrees in vocal, though, so, like, we're only, like, that's, halfway musicians. That's why I can sing it, like, da, 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 and get away with it. <laughs> that's what my, yeah, that's what the piece of paper that I got when I graduated is worth. <laughs> it lets me be able to sing really bad. But healthy. Thanks a lot. You're welcome. It's okay. We've all been there. Anyway, David. Yes. um, Have you ever heard of Bach? I have heard of Bach. I've been to his his church. I've seen his uh, grave marker. Well, he's not important right now because today we're going to talk about his son, Carl Philip Emanuel Bach. Or CPE Bach. Ah, classic CPE. Mm-hmm. I've played a single piece by CPE Bach. Um, most pianists play it. It's his um, Sofligetto. Okay. Yeah. I've seen that. Uh-huh. Yeah. Most people have. Um, I think that violinists play a fair amount of his work. Sometimes. Maybe. 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 Um. Again, sound off below if you've played the violin piece by C.P.E. Bach. Very true. Okay, so C.P.E. Bach, or Carl Philip Emanuel Bach, was born in Weimar on March 8th, 1714. So if you know anything about Bach's life, you can kind of imagine um, where, like, which point in his life uh, C.P.E. was born. I think Weimar was the second major place that he worked at before mm-hmm. moving to Leipzig. Yes, that's correct. Okay, so his parents, um, as I've alluded to, are Johann Sebastian Bach and Maria Barbara Bach. Mm-hmm. Um, in 1720, his mother died and his father remarried a year later to Anna Magdalena Bach. Do we know, do you know at the top of your head what number CPE Bach was in the like list of Bach children? He's the third, he's his third child and second surviving son. Third child, ooh, wow, he is really, really at the beginning of the Bach dynasty. For those that don't know, Bach had, like, more than ten kids. He had quite a few children. Quite a few children. And only four of them went on to um, become musicians later in life. I can name you CPE Bach. (laughs) Um... PDQ Bach? Of course. Can't of course. Forget. The classic. <laughs> That's next week's episode, PDQ Bach. Oh, uh, we love PDQ Bach. 
Peter Kubach is not actually a Bach. He's a he's a like parody classical composer that his music is supposedly found, quote unquote, by this guy that's a college professor. And it's all very funny. Hilarious. Plus. So he began his musical training at home with mm-hmm. the best teacher around, his father. It's um, a good teacher to have. I would be terrified to have <laughs> Bach as my instructor. Like, oh, Johan. Oof. He got the ruler ready. He had the ruler ready. <laughs> um, when CPE was 10, or in 1723, his family moved to Leipzig. Mm-hmm. Um, and he studied at the St. Thomas School, which is the school that was linked to the church that um, Bach was a music director at. Mm-hmm. The Thomas Kirka. I have been to the Thomas Kirka. That's where Bach's buried. Yeah, that, yep. <laughs> As stated before, he's just like in the ground in the middle of this church. <laughs> For all to see. For all to see. His organ's still there. You can, well, you obviously can't go up and just start playing it. But <laughs> in theory, you I've could. I've got my organ go card right here. I think that's, I think that's like kind of a thing though. Like, I know that some of the more prominent organists that I've known have just somehow been able to weasel their ways into, like, going to Europe and playing on these organs. I don't know. After he went to school at the St. Thomas School, he went on to study law at the University of Leipzig in 1731. And then he went on to uh, Frankfurt on the Oder in 1734. Mm -hmm. And he graduated at the age of 24 um, with a law degree, but he never used it as he went on to pursue music mm-hmm. as his main career for the rest of his life. But his father had taught him early on that no musician was going to be taken seriously unless they had a university education. <laughs> I'm glad to hear that some things haven't changed since like the 1700s. <laughs> Dodge that bullet. Oh, we, I'm glad that we have box support, even <laughs> if we don't know how the Vivaldi Four Seasons goes. After graduating, C.P.E. Bach moved to Berlin and entered the service of the crowned prince Frederick of Prussia, later King Frederick the Great. Wow, that's a big honor. That was a big honor. And so he worked there for quite a while. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Upon King Frederick's ascension to the throne, CPE became a member of the Royal Orchestra and begins writing sonatas for the harpsichord and the clavichord, or the piano. Mm -hmm. Um, So those were his first works that he actually composed on record. He may have, like, done some napkin compositions when he was a kid, but, like... Who doesn't? Yeah. Um... He states that he wasn't ever really happy working for the king, and he wanted to work somewhere where his music would be more appreciated. Mm. I can imagine that would be a big problem back then, because, like, you're expected to write all this great music, but the king probably doesn't care that much, you know? Yeah, or you're expected to write music dedicated to the king. Mm Mm-hmm. Even though he's probably not, he's going to listen to it and be like, "Mm, nice, and then move on. Yeah, yeah, because he's kind of like... In theory, at the least, leading, you know, an empire or a kingdom. A whole whole kingdom. A whole kingdom. He doesn't have time for your silly songs. No, nobody cares about your silly songs. 
1744, he marries Johanna Donemann and has three surviving children. None of them pursued music, but his youngest child, Johann Sebastian Bach, was a painter, but um, he died uh, pretty early on. Nice. Sad. 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 Not nice. Sad. <laughs> Good save. Thank you. Um, in 17... I'm going to say a lot of dates. That's okay. We love Just... dates. All right. In 1746, he was promoted to the post of chamber musician for the king. So he's getting more... He's not playing for the general orchestra anymore. He's more for, like, you know, the king's having lunch with, like, two people. Send in the chamber orchestra, you know? What a life to live if you just have Mm -hmm. your own private chamber orchestra. That's the dream. So early on, his music was influenced by his father, of course. Um, Also by his godfather, uh, Georg Philip Telemann. Telemann, whoa, so his godfather was Telemond? Mm-hmm, Telemann was uh, close friends with uh, J.S. Bach, and so he became um, CPE's godfather. That makes sense that Telemann and Bach would be good friends. Um, mm-hmm. Like, I know that there were a bunch of composers during this time period, but whenever we talk about music history, it always sounds like there's, like, five. Yes. Right. <laughs> Like, there's Telemann, there's Bach, there's Buxtehude. There's Handel. There's Handel. Well, Handel's off doing his own thing in Europe, so do we really care about Handel? In Europe? Who wrote Messiah? Handel. Oh, thank God, okay. <laughs> I thought for a second that I was getting Handel and Haydn confused. No, I mean, like, you said in Europe, like, of course they're all in Europe. They're in Germany. I meant, I meant in England. There we go. Non-continental Europe. Okay, fair. I'll I'll, I'll accept it. <laughs> Thank um, you. But Handel was also somebody who influenced him early early on as a contemporary, and Haydn he got some early Haydn in there. Interesting. Yeah, he Haydn was born like 10, 15 years after CPE was, so they're not too too far apart. They're close enough. Mm-hmm. But later on in Haydn's life, he would state that um, CPE was actually a big influence to his music. But I'll get there in a second. Mm-hmm. Um, so what's interesting about CPE's music, too, is that he states that it was also influenced by different mediums of art. So playwrights and poets, mm-hmm. not just musicians and composers. And CPE's style differs from his father's by being more contemporary and leaning more towards the classical era than Baroque, um, because mm-hmm. uh, J.S. Bach encur- encouraged his children to write in a more contemporary style, as nobody was really listening to Baroque music anymore, um, but that's what Bach continued to write until he died. Um, and CPE stated that he regrets not embracing his father's Baroque polyphonic style. So po- hmm. polyphony is um, a fancy word for the style that fugues are written in. So think of like row, row, row your boat, how one voice starts it and then another voice comes in singing the same thing. That's mm-hmm. sort of an abridged explanation of what polyphony is. Yeah, yeah. It's like if you think of like any old 
organ piece, you're probably thinking of polyphony. Yep. So, in 1750, guess what happens? Nothing. You're right. Moving on. In seven. No, I'm joking. <laughs> Dang it. In 1750, that's the year that Bach died. And, ah. um. <laughs> <laughs> I knew there was something important. And, um, music historians and musicians often say that 1750 was when the Baroque, uh, the Baroque era ended because Bach died. Yes, this is very true. Bach dies, and CPE applies for um, the job that he had at the Thomas Kirka, mm-hmm. but is unsuccessful and doesn't get the job, which is sad. I don't understand how he did it. That's dumb. Yeah. I mean, when you when you've got the legacy of Bach to live up to, of Ye- oh, well, Johan, you know, mm-hmm. it might be hard to find a replacement. That's true. So he stays in Berlin to work for the king mm-hmm. for a little, a little while longer. A little while longer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> cool. um, in 1753, CPE publishes the Versuch, which is a very long German title, but it translates to an essay on the true art of playing keyboard instruments. I feel like I've heard about that. Mm-hmm. If his father wrote a lot of books, CPE wrote a book. Because all those all those guys wrote, like, technical books and exercises, right? Because everybody wanted something, you mm-hmm. know? Like, I know that he's later on in life, but, like, Franz Liszt has a, like, 600-page manifesto on piano exercises that are really good and will work you to death. Um, right, but he has some, like, Cherny has them, so I'm not surprised that CPE Bach has them. Mm-hmm. Um, so the first part of the essay contains a chapter explaining the various embellishments in work of the, in the work of the period, like trills, um, and stuff like that, I and the second read, part... I need to read back up on that one. <laughs> and the second part, um is CPE's box ideas on the art of figured bass and counterpoint, hmm. as well as performance suggestions. Interesting. Yep. And this book was a staple of piano technique to this day, mm-hmm. and Haydn and Beethoven swore by it, so they say. If Haydn and Beethoven are swearing by it, you're doing something right. Mm-hmm. You should pick up a copy. Go down to my local Barnes & Noble. okay so in 1763 cpe bach finally leaves berlin and moves to hamburg where he becomes the music director of the five churches in hamburg Mm -hmm. um which was the which was a job that belonged to his godfather georg philip telemann oh telemann oh telemann good old telemann good old telly so he is now focusing his compositions more on lit- liturgical music, mm-hmm. so less on big orchestral pieces and sonatas, and he's writing a lot more um, cantatas, oratorio, um, motets. He writes a passion like his father, 
Nice. Cool. <laughs> cool. I mean, that's nice. I I appreciate that he is working on stuff. I'd be interested to hear how his passion is. Um, do you know what it's based off of? No. It's only four options. <laughs> I'm going to guess John. John? Let's see if we can find out. <laughs> Cast your votes on your phone now. Keyboard ASMR. Keyboard ASMR time with David and Victoria. He wrote one on all of them. Oh, great. So he, he <laughs> so has a I pat- was partially right. Yes, he has a passion on Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He could do it all. Scientists hate him. He actually, interestingly enough, when he was in Hamburg, he um yeah oh he actually he actually composed twenty one settings of the passion narrative. This first twenty not good enough. <laughs> Interesting. Oh, Apparently enough, he wrote one new passion. For 21 years. For um, each Easter. So he would do Matthew, Mark. He would do Matthew, then Mark, then Luke, then John. And then he'd go back to Matthew. And he just did that. From 1769 to 1788. Among other pieces. But hey, that's good job security. That's good job security right there. Dang, I can barely think of a melody. And this man can set the same text. To music 21 times. Amazing. What a guy. Amazing. What a man. Um, in 1780, he sells his rights and remaining stock of his Versuch. Um, and because he was self-published and he sold all of his books by himself and kept records of who bought them and when, his house was filled with a bunch of useless paper that he didn't really need anymore. He had some manuscripts that he um, had kept. He had letters and correspondence. And at one point, he was tired of all this paper. And so in 1782, he burns all of it. I was just about to say this sounds like a fire hazard. <laughs> I, if the fire marshal, that old, that classic 1780s fire marshal came into this house, he would say, yeah, I don't think you should have all this paper just laying around here, bud. Well, it's a good thing he got rid of all of it. Yeah, it is a good thing he got rid of all of it. I mean, it's it's not good because we could potentially know a lot more than we already do. And there could possibly be more music by him. But, you know. Probably. So did he kind of pull like a Brahms thing where he just destroyed a bunch of stuff? It was mostly clutter. I don't think it was like like an emotional like crisis or anything like that. Okay. Yeah, but it's his party, and he'll cry if he wants to. So true. And he cried, apparently. A few times. A couple. A few times. Uh... (laughs) Isn't music fun? I love my job. I love my job. So, okay. In 1787, his health starts to diminish, but... He continues to write for the church and continues working for um, the churches in Hamburg. Mm -hmm. And one of his favorite and final works is um, a cantata called 
Die Auferstehung, which I listened to a little bit earlier, and it is Chef's Kiss. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It is quite good. Is it... I assume it's fairly classic? Yeah, um, because Mo- um, one of a few sources that I read said that Mozart was really inspired by it. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's quite... It's definitely... It's... It alludes a little bit to his father's style of writing choral music, but mm-hmm. in a more contemporary way. Interesting. I like that. I would yeah. definitely give that a listen. I'll probably link, link in it show in the notes. show notes. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> um, so that's one of the final works that he wrote, and he said that he um, didn't really want to write that much for other people. Um, because he felt content with that piece and people would ask him to write more polyphonic music Mm -hmm. and um, stuff like that. But he said, nope, should have asked me earlier. Sorry. Nice. And then in um, 1788 on December 14th, he dies in Hamburg at the age of 74. So he lived a long time for the time period he was in. Yeah. No, he definitely did. That's good. Mm -hmm. I mean, Bach lived to be relatively old. Relatively. I feel like, well, until he had cataract surgery. In the mid darn eye doctor. In the mid seventeen hundreds. We actually when we were in um when we were in Leipzig, the person that was giving the tour, we went on like the Bach tour because duh we went on the Bach tour. Of course you went on the Bach tour. So we went on this Bach tour and um the person was telling us like about the end of Bach's life and from what I remember, apparently he had cataract surgery in the 1750s, which, ew. Yeah, it was botched, pretty much. It was botched badly, and then they thought back in the day that um, pigeon droppings had healing power, so they put pigeon droppings on his eyes to heal them, and they were healed. Just kidding. No, they got incredibly infected and he died. Let's go 1700s medicine. (laughs) Yeah, F's in the chat. Apparently Handel had the same eye surgeon, and so that's the only connection between Handel and Bach at the time. Because they never met. I would not trust Bach's eye surgeon. (laughs) Well, I don't think Handel could have known. Interesting. That, That is very, that is very interesting that they, uh, they had that connection. I would have never known that. Right? It's the most random connection, but it's there. Alrighty. So, in total, about 875 works of CPE Bach are cataloged. Wow. That's a lot. That's a lot. He really was his father's son. Yep. He's no Telemann, but... (laughs) Um, He wrote quite a few symphonies and um, keyboard concertos chamber music, keyboard sonatas, music for music boxes, and musical clocks. Hmm. All of these were during um, his time in Berlin when he worked for um, the royal court. Mm-hmm. And then when he moved to Hamburg is when he started focusing on choral music and choral works like cantatas, oratorio, motets, passions, all 21 of them. Hmm. That's interesting. So I guess... I guess the music box was starting to be invented at this mm-hmm. point. And so that's why he was writing for it. 
because obviously if there's anyone that could have afforded to have music boxes and have pieces written for music boxes, it probably would have been the king. Yep. He uh, bridges the Baroque and classical periods. I would consider him to be the composer that bridges the two, like how Beethoven bridged the classical and the romantic period. Mm-hmm. So I would give that title to C.P. Bach. He influenced the works of Haydn, Mozart, Beethoven, and Mendelssohn. Mozart said that C.P.E. Bach is the father and we are the children. Oh, that's cute. That includes you and me. Oh, we're C.P.E. Bach's children. Hey. Hey. Mm. He helped develop sonata form as it is known today. Oh, really? Mm Mm-hmm. He was portrayed by Wolfgang Lieben... Oh, God. Liebeniner. Um, Wolfgang Liebeniner in the 1941 biopic of his brother, Friedman Bach. What did Friedman do? I don't know. <laughs> Guess you have to watch uh, the film. Enough to warn a movie. Apparently. Um, there's a street named after him in Frankfurt. Uh, Carl Philipp Emanuel Bachstrasse. Nice. And the Carl Philipp Emanuel Bach Museum was opened in Hamburg in 2015. Cool. Mm-hmm. And that's the life story of C.P.E. Bach. Awesome. Nice. I like that. Yeah. Alrighty, so let's move on to the next section of the podcast where we're going to be taking a listen to some of CPE box music. So we're going to listen to two pieces. One is actually written originally for violin and accompaniment, but I've heard it done on pretty much every single solo instrument that you can imagine. So we're going to be listening to it today on the flute. The next one that we're going to be listening to after that is a harpsichord sonata. It's called the Württemberg Sonata, and it's the fourth one in a set of six. So let's get to that violin sonata first. All right, let's get into it. Let's do it. So far, it sounds very Baroque. And I think... Yes, this is a... I think the... The harpsichord is kind of helping that, but just by how um, how many ornaments there are playing in the harpsichord, um, mm-hmm. hints that it is of the Baroque era to me. Yes, I do agree with you wholeheartedly on that one. This is a very good example of um, counterpoint. Yeah, I like the trade-off between the the violin in this case and um, the harpsichord. Yeah.
it seems sort of like there's some call and response, which I know Bach did a lot of, his father, J.S. Bach. I like how it briefly modulated to um, the relative major. Mm-hmm. I like, I do, as you were talking earlier, I like the trade-off aspect that it has between the accompaniment and the soloist. They work mm-hmm. very well together. It doesn't feel like it's just the soloist being the, um, you know, being the star and then the accompaniment's just kind of there, mm-hmm. like you get in a lot of this. They're both very equal in this piece. Yeah, before um, the soloist started being a little more ornamental, I was going to say how it's funny that uh, CPE wrote more music for the harpsichord than for the soloist, mm-hmm. um, but then it switched and the the soloist was playing more music than the harpsichord, so yeah. yeah. The chord progressions seem more classical um, mm-hmm. and a little less daring than what his father did. Because I know, C- uh, I know J.S. Bach liked to be a little experimental with his chord progressions and um, using more diminished chords and more um, augmented chords. And so mm-hmm. this is definitely more towards the classical side. Yes. Or traditional yes. side. It sounds to me almost like if Mozart tried to write a piece by Bach. I think that's a good analogy. Yeah. We've modulated again. Uh-huh. Yeah, we're gonna do a fair amount of modulation. Mm-hmm. But we're never gonna get too far away no. from our home key. No. Yeah, see, we're um, coming back to it now. Yeah, there we are. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of really good sequencing happening. Yes. Yeah. Which is very indicative. Sequencing is whenever you take an idea and move it around a bunch. So, like, the Beethoven Fifth Symphony is a very good example of sequencing with that main melody. I like how structural this piece is. Yes, it is very structural. It fits into a very nice mold. There's nothing unexpected in this. It's fun to dance to. It is. It's got that very driving feeling that you often get with Baroque music. Mm-hmm. Like, there hasn't really been a second where it stops which is typical of Baroque music. Yeah, it's a fun piece.
I think it would be very good as a, like, kind of intermediate, introductory to Baroque-style recital piece. You know, like if you were teaching a kid or something like that. Yeah, I agree. Because it's not hard, relatively. Relatively speaking, no, it's not. No. I mean, the harpsichord part is a lot harder than the soloist part. (laughs) Speaking from experience. Yeah. Yes. But that's usually the case. Yes. And it's also probably um, figured bass. And so mm-hmm. the whoever's playing the harpsichord can ornament it as much or as little as they want to. Apparently, from looking at MSLP, this piece was formally thought to be by J.S. Bach. Interesting. Yes, it was categorized as a violin sonata, BWV um, 1020. But then it was recategorized later on as a piece by... Um, CPE. Nice. Nice. Yeah, I think it's a cool piece. I would definitely... This is definitely something that I feel like I would hear at a, like, Suzuki concert. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a really good piece, isn't it? Yeah, it's pretty good. All right, ready to move on? All right, are you ready? Yep, let's get into it. Let's do it. Right off the bat, it sounds very Baroque. Um, yes. Lots of trills, so it's it's a nod to the Baroque style. Mm-hmm. But some of these things that he's doing definitely have a more, like, beginning of the classical period feel to them, technique-wise. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of pauses in between different mm-hmm. sections, and so um, Baroque music is more continuous. Um, mm-hmm without any holes in it, and so this is a more modern take of something like that. Um, mm-hmm. with some yeah, the rhythm... Between. Yeah, the rhythm also is very erratic, it feels like. Right? Mm-hmm. There's not so much like that, you know, just driving, continuously going, right? It's a lot of, like, almost random, arbitrary pausing, right, to create these phrases. Mm-hmm. And as we're talking, I see that we've gone back to the beginning of the piece. Um, yes. So there's a we're go- there's a form to it. Yeah, we're essentially enough going to have an AABB form to this, from what I can tell. Nice. Yeah, it's nice. Mm-hmm. Very stylistic. Yeah, what we just heard isn't very typical of the Baroque era, so 
there's another example of um, modernization in his compositions. Mm-hmm. I don't think I would ever hear a J.S. Bach piece that sounds a little like this. No. Bach wouldn't write stuff like this. Also, the keys that he's going to, like the direction he's going to, uh, functionally speaking, very not Baroque. Mm -hmm. And like, he's playing some neighboring tones that would normally be just a half step away from the note that he wants to get to, but mm-hmm. instead he's playing like the the whole step away from that. So that is very interesting as well. Yes. Like that key change right there? Mm-hmm. Very classical. Yes. The ostinato beat um, reminds me a lot of Mozart's work, too. Mm-hmm. And ostinato, an ostinato... Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Go explain An it. ostinato is essentially enough just a repeated rhythm in the bass part. Mm-hmm. So that, 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 like, that would be the ostinato yeah. of this. And the performer is doing something that is very typical of this period, um, where he's adding in a lot of his own um, accidentals and uh, embellishments. So like those things that you're hearing, they're not actually written into the music typically. He's adding it in on his own to give it that more, um, to show off his skill, essentially. Mm-hmm. That's how... Um early continuo started is that they would just have the note the the figured bass would just have the root of the chord or mm-hmm. whatever um inversion the chord was in and have numbers on top of it so that the player would know like what chord to play with that note um and mm-hmm. they could embellish as much or as little as they wanted to yes and it's actually a pretty relatively modern thing to have uh, performers start to perform pieces the way that it is written verbatim on the score, right? For a long time, it was very common for people to just kind of make up their own stuff mm-hmm. during someone else's piece that they were performing, right? But that has changed, and now it's about playing just verbatim what is written. Yeah. And most composers also would not play the same piece of music the same way every time, right? It would be... You know, there were spots inside of the piece that you could use to create um, virtuosic moments. Mm-hmm. And it was like that even when um, Mozart was writing music. Like a lot of his oh, operas, yeah. um, the recitative part, uh, whoever was performing uh, or playing the continuo would embellish the recitative however they wanted to. Mm-hmm. Alrighty. That was good, yeah. 
Yeah, it's a really interesting little piece. Um, and since this is a sonata, there are other movements also to it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's three other movements to it, which is pretty typical of a sonata. Yeah, it sounds very um, regal. Um, which I yes. imagine this would have been written around the time where he worked for um, uh, Frederick the Great. Mm-hmm. So this was published in 1742. Yeah, that's early on in his career in the Royal mm-hmm. Court. Yep. Yes, so that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd be interested to look more at the form of this piece, right? To see, because I think you get hints of a very early prototype of the sonata form that we know today, mm-hmm. right? The exposition, development, and recapitulation yeah. idea. He was right? one of the pioneers for sonata form. Yeah, so that would make sense. Um, because it feels like we have, we definitely have themes. Obviously we have themes. Mm-hmm. And it does feel like he takes those themes and develops them in the middle. The only thing that I couldn't quite figure out, and I need would need to look over the score more, is how much recapitulation does he really do? Yeah, and themes don't always show up only in the melody. They can be, um, they can appear in the figured bass, they can appear in rhythm, they can appear in um, Mm -hmm. different, like, sequences. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, and especially with this style of music, you know, there is, melody alone is not the driving factor um, in this. Especially considering how weird some of these rhythms are. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I also want to point out how unconventional the, like, the key changes are. Which mm-hmm. His father, J.S. Bach, did um, introduce more tonality into uh, Baroque music. Um, in, like, those crunchy, like, seventh or diminished chords. So he was the main pioneer for that in the Baroque era. And so I like how uh, CPE Bach just does his own little interpretation of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. Um, yeah, it's a really, it's a really interesting piece. I would definitely be interested in hearing this played by, um, pianists. I mean, harpsichord is too. It was written for the harpsichord, but as you can imagine, the number of harpsichord players out there is, um... Very few. Yeah, it's, it's eh. few. Well... I guess it depends on where you are in the world. Technically, if you play the piano, you can play the harpsichord, but there are few special, like, harpsichord specialists still out there. Yeah, and the harpsichord, there are a few things about the harpsichord that make piano players just want to tear their hair out on occasion. (laughs) Like, like the keys are smaller, right? Mm -hmm. And so, my reach on the piano, I can reach about an eleventh. On the piano, wow, right? Wow, big hand boy. I know. On the harpsichord, I can reach a 12th, um, which is problematic because your hands are so used to, like, certain shapes being the intervals, right? So, like, I know right off the bat that my hand position right now is in octaves, right? But in harpsichord, it's not actually an octave. So there's, like, this muscle memory that just gets thrown out the window. Mm-hmm. And there's no mm-hmm. sustain pedal, right? There's no... There's kind of sustain, right? But not really. But you can't, like, there. you can't make any differences in um, 
dynamics because like no matter how hard you hit the note on the harpsichord it's going to be the same volume Mm -hmm. so i can imagine how frustrating that is so for well and that's and that's where it gets even more confusing because most most like performance harpsichords are actually multiple manualed right so they usually have two manuals a manual for those of you that don't know is like the keyboard on a piano so a piano is a single manual instrument right so it just has one long set of keys but organs are typically like three yeah like three manuals right so they have like three sets of keys stacked on top of each other do the foot Um, pedals count no foot pedals aren't manuals they're or i think they're not i'm not an organist so i don't know that much about the organ i just know that it's crazy to play Mm -hmm. yeah um but So, harpsichords do actually have stops, though, right? So, like, the one that at the college that we went to had um, a couple of different stops, right? And so it was, like, these little pegs that you could twist, and it would cause the plucking of the string to do different things. So it could be a more dull pluck, or it could be a more hard pluck. So you can kind of get dynamics somewhat, But it's not at all the same level that the piano has, where you can go from, you know, great fortes that are super loud and just full of sound all the way down to, like, tiny little, you know, pianissimos that are almost impossible to hear. And that's why in the Baroque era, they focus so much on playing a lot of notes after each other, because the piano, the harpsichord couldn't make a very loud sound and so they would have to continuously play notes for a sound to come out and as the piano was being developed into the piano forte or like the romantic era piano that's where you get really really loud and then really soft moments and that contrast Mm -hmm. and dynamics and that's why that's such a huge characteristic of romantic music and not baroque Mm -hmm. music because the further the piano developed the more you could do with it dynamic wise Mm -hmm. And for those that don't know the difference between a piano and a harpsichord, just for super quick clarity, a piano has mallets that strike um, strings, right? They're they're felted soft mallets, obviously, they're not like hammers. Um, (laughs) But so they're, but they're called hammers. Um, So the mallet strikes the string and that causes it to vibrate, whereas a harpsichord, the string is plucked, Mm -hmm. right, by a little hook. Um, and so because the mallet is hitting instead of the string being plucked, you can have the mallet go at different speeds and that gives you dynamics, um, based on how hard you press down on the keys, but the harpsichord only plucks at one volume level. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And there's your very short lesson on the harpsichord. (laughs) Yes. There's actually a really big, um, group of people in school of people that have started trying to revive the harpsichord by rebuilding them um, and getting people interested in building harpsichords. I know you can actually buy a build-your-own harpsichord kit. Oh, wow. So if any of our rich audience that's also (laughs) DIY savvy wants to build their own harpsichord, um, I don't know where to find a link for it, but I'm sure that if you Google, like, DIY harpsichord... You'll get plenty of results. I want to hear some Vaporwave harpsichord music, so y'all get to it. Please. (laughs) Awesome. Well, I'm glad that we got to listen to this, and I'm glad that we got to listen to the flute sonata also. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Hi-Ho Podcast. Once again, my name is Victoria Sundin. And I'm David Westbrook. 
And if you want to keep up with us on social media, you can follow us on Instagram at HiHoPodcast. And if you want to shoot us an email with any observations you've made from the music we listened to today, you can email us at thehihopodcast at gmail.com. And we'll catch you guys next week. Bye. Bye.